Well, good morning. And if you're a guest, we're delighted to have you with us uh, this morning. And we hope you will have an enriching experience as uh, we worship together. And now as we come uh, to the reading of Scripture, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And in recognition that this is the very Word of God, it's our custom to stand. If you're uh, able, please do so. O gracious uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, giver of life and the very voice of God, speak to us through these words that you have caused to be written. Make them alive to us. Enlighten our eyes. Move our hearts. Grant, O Lord, that our hearing would result in obeying. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they returned to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not good the report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, 
did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father uh, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Uh, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to all of what is in my heart and my mind, And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please take your seats. We are experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our nation. In their book, The Great Dechurching, Davis, Graham, and Burge write that in the past 25 years, more people have left church than all the people who came to faith in the first Great Awakening the Second Great Awakening, and in the global ministry of Billy Graham. Now, it would be both unwise to ignore what's happening or to sink into despair. The American church has been through dark times before. It is true that many people of deep faith came to America to start their life here. But in the, by the early 1700s, uh, colonial America was spiritually a dark place. Only 10% of Americans went to church. But the situation was actually gloomier than that number might suggest because a large number of the pastors were unbelieving. And a large percentage of the people who attended church were God's grandchildren. They were in church because their parents had been in church 
before them, and they themselves had neither a sincere uh, nor vital relationship with God. Samuel Blair, who lived in that time in the Middle Colonies, uh, wrote, Religion lay, as it were, a-dying, ready to expire its last breath of life in the visible church. Now, we expect the world to be dark, but when her leaders in the church are unbelieving and her people are not believers as well, indeed things are dark. And this is, in fact, where we find ourselves as the book of Samuel opens. The book of Samuel is the continuation of the story of the book of Judges. And those last dark chapters, the condition of the nation, both uh, socially and spiritually, are in fact the situation in which uh, we encounter as we read in this book. And the story before us uh, is a dark one. It's a story of uh, warning about Eli and his sons. But it's also a story that's wrapped in hope. This morning we're going to look first at the warning and then secondly at the hope. And in both of them, we will see God's commitments. Now this story alternates the way uh, if you were in a very dark room at night, you might flip the light switch on and off. There's darkness, then there's light darkness, and there's light as the story moves back and forth between Eli and his sons and Samuel and his family. So the warning's in three parts. It's the first scene, uh, begins in verse uh, 12, and we read these words. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. There is a damning assessment. It's hard to imagine a more damning assessment of a priest. These men are the chosen descendants of Aaron. They've been appointed to represent God to the people uh, by instructing them in his ways and to represent the people to God by praying for them and administering uh, their offerings. These men didn't know the Lord. That's like having a bookkeeper who can't do addition, or a mechanic who doesn't know what to do with a wrench. These men are immersed in religion. They are handling the things of God, and yet they have no knowledge of him. And then we're told what they're doing. And the description goes on a little bit. And unless you're really immersed in the Old Testament, you might not really uh, catch what's happening. It concerns the offerings. And it's not that they've inadvertently failed to observe some detail in the law. No, it is that they are deliberately and aggressively going against what they know or what they should know, should have happened in the offerings. So priests are to be holy. They're to be holy before the Lord, not only in the way they live, but holy also as they bring Israel's sacrifices to the Lord. 
And the seriousness of this was made very clear on the opening week of the tabernacle as Aaron's uh, four sons come uh, to be ordained to the priesthood. Two of them disobey God and they are immediately uh, uh, burned to a crisp. Eli's sons, uh, uh, as priests, were entitled to portions of certain sacrifices. In the peace peace offering, they were entitled uh, to the breast and the right leg. But this wasn't enough uh, for Hophni and Phinehas. And so they sent a man along with a three-pronged fork to collect more. And they would even insist that there would be given raw meat before the fat was burned in the fire before the Lord. Even the ordinary Israelite knew that that's not the way things were to be done. But if they objected, there would be a threat of violence. These men were stealing from God. They wanted the best for themselves. And yes, even the ordinary people of Israel knew this was wrong. The second vignette starts in verse 22 and runs to 26. And Eli is old, and the immorality of his sons is public knowledge in Israel. Uh, The tabernacle has been turned uh, into a brothel instead of a place where sin is confessed. It's being committed. And Eli says uh, to his sons two things. It's in verse 25, and you need to look at it closely or listen carefully. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? He's saying, look, if you sin against someone else, God can mediate for you. God can get in the middle and help work things out. But if you sin against God, who is it that can represent you before God? Who can placate him and pacify him so that he would be uh, receptive to you. Eli's warning his sons that their defiance would place them beyond help. But here's the next part of verse 25. He says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, Now notice carefully, it doesn't say... Uh, Hophni and Phinehas didn't listen to dad, and so God decided to put them to death. No, it says that Eli's sons did not hear their father's exhortation and warning because God had determined to put them to death. Eli and Phinehas' resistance uh, to their dad when he was old was not the reason for their judgment. No, it was the result of God's judgment. Now, the text is teaching us something uh, that uh, is very, very serious. It's a warning that we all need uh, to take in. That it's uh, possible to be so uh, given over to your rebellion against God that God confirms you uh, in that. That God gives you over uh, to rebellion, so much so that you become deaf uh, to any warnings or pleadings for repentance. One old uh, commentator uh, 
puts it well. He says, the experience of the fate of men who deliberately sin against the light, who uh, love their lust so well that nothing will induce them to fight against them, uh, they were so hardened that repentance became impossible for them. This, he's writing about these two sons of Eli. Now, be very careful with what you do with what you've just heard. Some of you may decide to become God's judge and decide that he lacks mercy. Others of you might want to be curious about the mechanism by which this takes uh, place. Um, you might wonder, well, just how does hardening take place? And, and maybe how far can I give myself to something I know is wrong and still be able to turn back and repent? Beware of being God's critic or curious at this point. It's not our place to do either. This is sometimes called judicial hardening. And it's described both in Romans 1 and Romans 9. It's the story of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Take it to heart. Walk in the light that you have. Obey what you know of God's will. Ask for a soft heart. Submit to God. Determine and purpose in submission to him that you will battle every impulse within you that would turn away from what you know is his will. Augustine, the the great bishop from the early church, has this prayer that really captures, I think, the posture uh, that ought to be reflected in our hearts. Cleanse me from my secret faults. Those are things you can't see that you're doing. O Lord, and forgive the offenses of your servant, which he has caused in others. I contend not in judgment with you who are the truth. I fear to deceive myself, lest my sin should make me think that I am not sinful. And so we should pray. The third snapshot involves a prophet. Now, almost always when a prophet shows up in the Old Testament, it is bad news. And speaking for God, the prophet says, I, indeed, Eli, had a special relationship with you, one that would have continued for as long as Israel existed. But you have honored your sons above me. Now we're told two really important things in verse 29. Uh, We're told that God held Eli responsible uh, for the action of his adult sons. Now, before you cry, this is not fair, you need to understand that Eli is the high priest, and all the other priests work for him. He is responsible uh, for them in their official duties. He may not have been able to keep his sons from immorality, but he could have removed them from the priesthood. He didn't ever act. All he did was use words. Now, let me say it another way. Eli is the high priest, and he's responsible for everything that goes on in the tabernacle. He's to make sure it all squares up with God's commandments and expectations. And he should have removed any priest who didn't carry out things properly. 
including his sons. But you as a parent are not responsible for the sins of your 35-year-old son or daughter. God doesn't expect that of you, you know. You, they, don't, they don't report to you. Uh, uh, they make their own choices and decisions. Now, we're also told why it is that Eli uh, didn't love his sons more than God. Why he put them above God. Verse 30, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now, we're going to be told in chapter 3 that Eli is obese. He's a very fat man. And here we're told in verse 29 that Eli was fattening himself on these stolen offerings. Eli's love of his sons and his appetites were more important to him than God. This is what he treasures the most. And so God is going to cut off uh, not only Eli's sons, but almost every single one of his descendants. And the few that are left... Their lives are going to be so miserable that they wished they were dead. And this is, in fact, what happens. It won't uh, be long uh, before Eli's sons die. And then uh, Saul will order uh, at Nob the, the destruction of the priests by the sword. Now, this is a terrible, sobering teaching. And it brought to mind an experience that uh, we had when we moved to Atlanta now, Atlanta, the Atlanta suburbs uh, were wealthy where we uh, lived. And we saw a report in the paper uh, about two uh, high school boys, I think they were juniors, who had been arrested. They had stolen an SUV. They had driven around at night with a baseball bat hanging out the window and destroyed dozens of mailboxes. And then they uh, dumped car in a lake. Well, the school administration uh, responded in keeping with its policy and uh, wanted to suspend these boys. And their fathers, uh, having deep pockets, hired attorneys to overturn the school's policy. The paper reported that their motivation to do this was to keep a black mark off their son's records lest it keep them from receiving football scholarships to college. Your parents, this passage is full of instruction uh, for us. Eli failed to address the character issues in his sons long before the events in chapter 2. And lots of parents today are not unlike the parents in East Cobb. They want their children, above all, to be successful and prosperous in life. Many of them want them to be high achievers in everything. And maybe they'd also like them to turn out to be nice people as well. Don't aim for nice, and don't make success the highest goal you have for your children. Seek to develop within them godly character. And the root of godly character is the fear of God. 
To live in the fear of God means that we live before God in all of reality, realizing that all of life is a gift. Everything that we do is lived before him. That there's never any contempt in us. We don't take anything for granted, and so we don't go through life bored. Contempt and boredom are sure markers that the fear of God hasn't captured our hearts. Now, it's not just to parents that this warning comes. It comes to everybody who goes to church, everybody uh, who owns a Bible, and actually, uh, especially those who are in church uh, leadership, starting with me. Because you see, there's something about involvement with spiritual things that makes it easy for us to deceive ourselves. Participating regularly uh, in uh, spiritual activities, uh, becoming further and further acquainted with the truth of Scripture, uh, listening uh, to uh, wonderful podcasts or sermons or, or reading spiritually sound things can actually lead us to think we're in a right relationship with God when, in fact, we are not. Proximity to God, spiritual activity, attendance at spiritual events are no substitute for submission. And it's possible to handle the things of God regularly and to fail uh, to have a heart that's sensitive to God's will. You boys and girls, the children of the covenant, don't delay in responding to God's call to you. Surrender uh, to him. Don't uh, resist what you know to be God's uh, will for your uh, life. Here's the commitment of God. He is committed to the holiness in his people. And holiness is not just some Old Testament uh, concern of God's. It's uh, filled with, uh, the New Testament is filled with exhortations and warnings about holiness. Here's just a few. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you hear that? With, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or the apostle writes, for God has not called us uh, for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit uh, to you. You who are Christians are all actually priests. We, together, are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and we grieve him. Uh, when we don't seek to live lives that are holy and pleasing to him. Now, this story is a story of warning, but it's also wrapped in hope. And it would be easy to miss the hope. Now, it's true that Israel's leaders are uh, corrupt, they're uh, unholy, and they're treating God with contempt. And, you know, this is what we normally do, isn't it? When we see corruption somewhere... Well, we just think, well, 
the whole system's corrupt, whether it's in government or business or an organization. And it's especially true in church, right? After all, church, we expect things to be done to a higher standard. We expect its leaders to demonstrate a significant degree of holiness in their lives and and obedience. But this story challenges our thinking at just this point. Because Samuel grew up in this dark environment. These are the people he's around as he's learning how to be a priest. Goodness can survive the presence of evil. Goodness can survive the presence of evil. Wherever you're living, wherever you're working, wherever you're going to school, goodness can survive the presence of evil. No matter how dark it gets, even when those who are appointed to do the will of God do not, God will raise up others who will. And then we see the second commitment here. And it's a commitment that should fill us with hope. God is committed to the good of his people uh, and acts to bring it to pass. Now, this is just written in the very structure of the way uh, the second chapter is written. I didn't read the verse that uh, came uh, just before the ones I opened. It says, then Elkanah went home and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And then it flips over to the darkness We have the sins of Hophni and Phinehas. And then in verses 18 to 21, we're told that Samuel is ministering before the Lord and his mother makes uh, makes him a special garment. And because she gave her son to God, uh, God gives her five more children. And then we have Eli's rebuke to his sons. And then we read that Samuel is growing in favor and stature with God and man. That's verse 26. And then we end up with the words of the prophet. But even there is this word of hope. Right in the midst of this prophetic indictment and judgment for sin, there's hope. It's verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who should do according to all that's in my heart and mind, and I will build for him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So this has a near... It has a a far, and then it has a final fulfillment, this prophecy. The near fulfillment is that Samuel, who is of priestly descent, will be a priest, a prophet, and Israel's final judge. And he will carry out God's will. It will have its far fulfillment when, after uh, the priest of that day, when uh, David becomes king, had actually joined in Absalom's revolt. And his son Solomon will remove him from office and appoint a new line, the line of Zadok, that will faithfully minister to God. Light after darkness. This was the first great awakening in America. It was the Reformation. Ralph Davis, who was one of my teachers, Uh, uh, found this illustration that I think captures this so well. 
It was printed in Leadership Magazine, which is a Christian ministry journal, and it was about a B-17 bombing run over a German city uh, uh, during World War II. The Nazi aircraft flak uh, hit the gas uh, tanks in several uh, places, but the plane made it home, and the pilot uh, came back to the crew chief after they landed and said, hey, uh, you know, I'd really like one of those shells. Uh, You know, I'd like to put it as a souvenir uh, in my office. Well, the crew chief said there wasn't one or two. There were actually 11 unexploded shells in the gas tank. And it had been sent over uh, to intelligence, and they'd been initially, uh, they'd been sent over to be disarmed, and um, they discovered that these shells were empty, all but one. It had a note uh, written in check. When they managed to find someone on base who could read check, it said this, this is all we can do for now. Now, see, these Czechs had been forced to work in a munitions plant for the Nazi cause. They didn't try to blow up the plant. They didn't try to assassinate Hitler. They simply didn't put explosives in some of the shells. And this was all very quiet. It was unnoticed, but it was a work of salvation for some of the crews who flew in the war. And this is frequently God's way for his people. You know, we want God to work in uh, loud, big ways. Uh, Very often his way is uh, quiet. It's easy to miss. We won't become too discouraged over Hophni and Phinehas as long as we see little Samuel ministering before the Lord. We won't be overcome with discouragement in the darkness if we remember that God likes to work quietly. The final fulfillment of the words of this prophet come in the person of Jesus Christ. To sin against God, Eli says, is to put yourself in a position beyond help. And all of us have sinned. All of us have resisted the light. All of us have chosen to do what we knew we shouldn't have done. All of us have failed uh, to give thanks to view life as a gift. All of us have trusted more in our wisdom and goodness than in God's ways. And God is offended. We have honored our own appetites, our desires above him, and perhaps even our families. We need a high priest who can go to God for us. And God, in his great mercy, has given us such a high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is committed both to God's holiness and to the good of God's uh, people. He has done this for us. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, grant, Lord, that the hope would be just as strong for us as the warning here. Grant us hearts that are humble and tender, that fear and honor you. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in the light. And we pray for one another these very same prayers. Lord, we look for you, even as you work quietly through small things, even this little boy, Samuel, 
to work through us in the midst of